Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And just for starters, sorry. It's been a while. We know. We've both been slammed, which is usually a pretty lame excuse, but there's really only so many hours in the day. We're going to record something this weekend with Chris Martin, who we met at the Sound Education Conference and who hosts the Half Hour of Heterodoxy podcast, which you should check out, but had some technical difficulties. So that'll be forthcoming. So just in terms of housekeeping, if you don't follow us on social media, we are on social media at Reconsider Pod on Twitter, on Facebook. If you like the show and you've been listening for a while, please do leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice, be it Apple Podcast or Google Play or Overcast. That helps us get the message out and we'd appreciate it. And for those of you who really love the show, we subscribe to the Dan Carlin model of a buck a show on Patreon, patreon.com slash reconsider. We've actually made really good use of the money this year. So with marketing, it's helped us expand our base significantly. We're going to be able to take more money next year, pour it back in, continue to grow the show. Turns out, you know, in the wide world of podcasting, marketing dollars matter. And so, you know, we just want to give a really big thank you to everyone who's so generously given on Patreon for us to be able to, you know, continue to expand the show, reach more people and, you know, get more people to, to fall in love and learn a thing or two. So thank you to those folks. And then finally, podcasts of the months here at Agora, because we basically missed December. And again, sorry about that. So first, Heather Tasco of English Renaissance History is doing Tudor Radio Project, where she's actually bringing together like all things Tudor. So those of you who are into, you know, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, all that good stuff, that is the place to go. And Heather is the best. We love Heather. We stayed with her while we were in, in Spain. And I got to see her very briefly at the conference that we went to in Boston. I just want to shout out to Heather if you're listening. Hope you had a safe rest of your trip. And she even asked me something about real estate. So maybe at some point we'll do an episode on that or something. <laughs> awesome. And then January's podcast of the month, which you should also go check out, is Dominic's History of Egypt. You can find it on any podcatcher. As usual with Agora, if it's history and it's got a name, Agora owns it. So if you just search History of Egypt, you will get it. It is the biggest. It is the baddest. It is the bestest. And it's probably something that you don't know nearly as well as, say, English history 
which I do love David Crowther, but, you know, go learn yourself something new. Dominic's History of Egypt. All right, on to the show. So we called the, the this episode Tribal Flippage, and maybe Tribal Ugh. Flippage is kind of a stupid term. I don't know. I just came up with it right before the episode. I mean, it kind of sounds like a disease that involves some sort of leakage. I, Eric, do you have anything better than that? Oh, God. Oh, come on, man. Oh, Jeez. Uh, no, I was thinking more like, so like with, with dogs that have short faces, like pugs and such, they do this thing like where they're, it's called reverse sneezing. And it's because this like little malformed flap in their sinuses has flipped the wrong way. And they're trying to like literally push it back to be comfortable, which is what I first thought of was like, oh, some like excess sinus skin flap has flipped the wrong way. And now you're in, now you can't breathe. So that's my vision of tribal flippage. You're welcome. Wonderful. So back at this conference, uh, Sound Education Podcast Conference uh, at Harvard in early November, Eric gave a talk about how different tribes will support the same position at different times. So if Group A, for example, thinks that going to war and never, never land is a great idea and Group B doesn't, then 10 years later, you know, they kind of forget and now Group B wants to bomb Peter Pan. I don't know what Peter Pan did to deserve it, but I'm sure he was endangering national security somehow. I mean, flying into kids' bedroom windows? Eh. You mean like with a plane? Like, is this 9-11 all over again, but at an orphanage? I mean, Peter Pan was responsible for 9-11 is what I'm saying right now. That's the new, yeah, that's. That's the new thing. Actually, yes, if you if you look if you look up the one of the amateur videos in a little corner, there's some doofus with a feather in his hat flying around the planes and zipping off right before they run into the World Trade Center. So, there you go. Find it on YouTube. Oh, so that got dark real fast. Um, <laughs> Hooray, Peter Pan. Well, like the thing that's kind of dark about this whole show, of course, is we're going to we're going to take people and say, "Hey, look, this idea that you have this policy idea that you have that you know is is very well reasoned and right and true and just and immutable universal and eternal is surely it's not something that you have just changed one's mind about in such a short period of time right like this this entire notion has the risk of like up you know if 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 someone accepts it and like sees it they're going to go like oh my god like you know these ideas that i have are things i've i've just flipped on because of you know tribal messaging about them and for that reason you know that that ego that fear of being exposed even internally as someone who's inconsistent you know there can be a lot of resistance to this idea that when our tribe flips on something we flip along with it so we're going to get really heavy on a lot of examples here, you know, and ultimately the tribes have flipped. They flipped frequently and and not always for the best in reason, the best reasons. And that the prime reason, of course, that any tribe flips on something is who's in the Oval Office, who's at the Resolute Desk at any given time, you know, in our sports as politics culture in the United States and much of the West, you know, when when a tribe's leader advocates a position, you know, the tribe rallies around them and it just naturally creates resistance in the opposing tribe because it was the wrong guy who said it. And the hard truth is we tend to follow the tribe's groupthink far more often than we like to believe. So we're, we're going to cover a couple of examples of how certain policy positions have 
really flipped quite drastically over the last couple of years. Trump is a part of it. He's changed the narrative. He's thrown a wrench into traditional political dialogues, kind of. But it's happened everywhere. Those who love Trump uh, tend to love whatever he does, and those who oppose him tend to hate whatever he does. It doesn't really matter how they felt about the same policy in 2014. And what we'll see is that there's a reason for why this flip occurs. There's a story about how it's different now, although the story usually doesn't include, oh, we've changed on this. So we'll see how some surprisingly similar policies have developed some very different stories that surround them and how those stories look completely different. And what it is, is that those stories are often carefully crafted to either make us love or hate a particular position. So of our two big examples, one of them is going to be immigration and international trade, which sound like very different policies, but until somewhat recently, we're actually very closely linked. So let's think about this. Do you remember when the right tribe was all about free trade and easy worker immigration and the left tribe was all about protecting the American worker from the hazards of international trade driven by greedy profit-seeking corporations? I remember. (laughs) I remember. Oh, yeah. I was going to go for Pepperidge Farm remembers, which is a... For those who don't know, meme A, South Park, meme B, uh, Family Guy. So, you know, Pepperidge Farm remembers. And, you know, and so imagine this story. Signing free trade deals allows big multinational corporations to outsource more work to cheap places like India, China, Africa, etc. It allows those corporations to move good American industry overseas. It starves the American worker. And it drives, it only supports corporate profits at the expense of the middle class of blue collar workers of real Americans. Okay, now imagine this story. We need to limit worker immigration visas because they're a way that corporations bring in this cheap labor to the U.S. And it just serves to undercut American workers. Immigrants are willing to work for less. So it's really only a win for corporations. Wall Street, all at the expense of Main Street. Now imagine this story. America is a nation of free trade, of capitalism, driven by free enterprise, free business opportunity. We are a pro-growth nation and a pro-growth administration. We are a party that is pro-business, pro-doing, pro-building. And we want the government to get out of the way of those businesses doing what they want, hiring who they want, sourcing from where they want, selling to whom they want. Outsourcing is good for efficiency, and we need to be efficient to keep up and stay ahead. Immigration and you know, bringing in educated and lower-cost labor from abroad is good for efficiency and growth. Efficiency and growth are good for everyone. They're good for America. A rising tide lifts all boats. So who was telling these stories in the 1990s and 2000s? Well, centrists and right-wingers were advocating for more free trade, more immigration. Yes, More immigration from Republicans. I know we forget, but Pepperidge Farm remembers. (laughs) Ted Cruz was pushing for a massive increase in H-1B visas as late as 2014, and he was starting to get the Senate on board with them. Romney ran on more free trade deals, more H-1Bs, more foreign workers coming to the United States to fuel American business. And think about the story that's around it, right? Business. 
And Democrats for a long time campaigned on protecting the American worker from the excesses of corporations, those excesses and global free trade, global capitalism, multinational corporations who were not accountable to the people, to government, were driving inequality and suppressing wages, forcing corporations to pay American workers fair wages and keep work here in the United States as a priority. Republicans like Romney were campaigning on the pro-business side of things. Romney was lambasted for his work at Bain, where he frequently outsourced work from businesses that Bain Capital bought to overseas, taking advantage of free trade deals that made it easy for American corporations to have nexus overseas, to be able to hire more workers overseas, to be able to import more from overseas rather than build in the United States. And it was bad for the American worker, good for corporations, all enabled, of course, by unrestricted free trade policies designed by corporations to benefit corporations. And then things started to change. Obama advocated for the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big trade agreement with countries in the Pacific. Both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016 ran vehemently against the TPP. They both said it was bad for American workers. And their supporters listened. Both would have nixed the TPP, likely. Trump ended up leaving it. And the right and left both started to become wary of free trade agreements. Trump took over the Republican Party. And they, too, turned against free trade. So what's the new story that has developed since then? Well, Democrats now are pro-trade. They're against Brexit. They are against the attempts by the Trump administration to eliminate NAFTA. It it basically has eliminated NAFTA and replaced it with something that is very similar to NAFTA with just some, some new rules. Because trade makes the U.S. a part of the international community. It makes it a part of the world, and its tariffs and nationalist policy, economic policies are bad for American interests. So Democrats now are generally pro-free trade, and Republicans now have become against it because free trade, quote, cheats America and American workers, and a lot of Republicans want to put American America first, so to speak, right? It's basically the same exact set of policies, but the stories have become completely different. And so you see the tribes flipping really hard here. And on immigration, where previously Democrats were advocating for protecting American workers from excessive immigration that was driving down wages and increasing corporate profits— Now, the Trump administration has got the Republicans pushing back on legal immigration. Trump briefly flirted with the idea of restricting green cards. Um, In this case, it came with a reform designed to fast track green cards for highly educated workers using a point system, but have far fewer green cards given out, about half every year. And Canada, Australia have the point system, but as a percentage of their population, they already bring in many more green cards than the United States. The Trump administration has also made it significantly harder and slower to get H-1B visas and green cards. There's more scrutiny. There's more auditing. There are more requirements, more paperwork. And this is under the story of, well, you know, immigration is a way that bad people can sneak into the United States. We have to have extreme vetting. We have to make it hard for people to get in because they could be terrorists. We have to make it hard for people to get in because we don't want them to undercut the American worker. 
we want to put America first, American jobs with American workers. And it's the total opposite of former Republican policy. Yeah. And just to convey some of these developments in terms of legal immigration trends, here's a couple of quick stats. Uh, The number of people receiving permanent visas to the U.S. declined by 12% during Trump's first two years of office. It has become a lot more difficult for refugees to come here. So people coming from war-torn countries like Yemen and Syria have declined by quite a bit. I, I actually forgot to pull the exact number, but I think it was more than 50%. It was something like 80%. Even, even though refugee flows to the U.S. makes up a relatively small portion of total legal immigration to the U.S., there's also been new guidelines issued by the administration to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Bureau that involves basically denying applications without giving warning. So what would used to happen is an applicant would submit this application for some sort of visa or another, and the U.S. CIS would say, oh, your, your application was denied for this reason, or there's this problem or error in your application. And this would let the applicant and their immigration attorney basically correct those errors. So now applicants are not getting that warning, and it just makes it harder to correct mistakes and figure out what exactly is wrong with the application, which makes the application process much longer. And so part of it, part of what's going on is this story of immigration has been, you know, it used to be two very separate things, H-1Bs versus, you know, like just illegal immigration being an issue of authorization, right, of, of just coming in the normal way. But it's all been tied together. Immigrants are now generally scary. And so the same story is going on for illegal immigration, whereas previously that story didn't exist, even though Republicans and Democrats were very united on policy, right? So right now, Trump talks about his wall. What does he want to do? He wants to increase border security and restrict illegal immigration, make it harder for illegal immigrants to cross the border without authorization. And this is something that the Obama administration did to great effect. Republicans and Democrats worked together during the Clinton, Bush, and Obama years to tighten border security because there was a very large influx of unauthorized immigration coming through the border. And people generally agreed that this was a problem, right? It was often, you know, bad that immigrants are coming in, you know, for Democrats, it was often bad that immigrants are coming in undocumented because they were being taken advantage of because they didn't have paperwork, right? They didn't have a way to get fair wages, to get minimum wage and stuff like that. And, you know, often you'd hear arguments from both sides that like, look, you know, this cheap labor coming in is it can be bad for the lowest wage American workers. And actually in Wedged, we've cited a few articles where there's evidence of that. So it was, people were united on it. It was this kind of, it just wasn't a very, something people are very angry on. But now Trump has changed the, the story in a substantial way. And in using that story, what he wants to do is, you know, expand Obama's, you know, Obama's running policies. In the Obama administration, the United States deported more illegal immigrants than any previous administration. The border fence and border guard were expanded more than any previous administration. The number of illegal immigrants in the United States actually net dropped for the first time since Reagan, who actually introduced a an amnesty for illegal immigrants that is, by many studies, largely credited for incenting an influx of illegal immigrants to come afterward, right? And heck, the Obama administration's Customs and Border Patrol actually deployed tear gas at the border 79 times in 2012 to 2016. 
right? And and the one tear gas incident, we we you know that got to the news and the Trump administration is now very controversial. At this time, the story around it wasn't that strong. It was kind of quiet. It was something that everyone kind of agreed on because people hadn't dumped these elements of the story into illegal immigration policy. We just did it. And if we look at just the pure policy perspective, what Trump's administration wants to do is expand on what the Obama administration already did. Obama, Bush, and Clinton all built border fence. Trump wants to build even more. Obama, in the, his last year, Obama's ICE deported, or, re, or so rather arrested, 110,000 you know, alleged illegal immigrants. In his first year, Trump increased that to 143,000. This is an increase, but it's not substantially different. It's not anything new. This is all actually old hat. Now, though, despite everything that, that Eric just talked about that did actually transpire under the Obama administration, ICE are suddenly the bad guys. ICE is just U.S. immigration and customs enforcement. Expanding border fencing is now anathema. This fence, the so-called wall, it's become a symbol. To some, it's suddenly tantamount to the Berlin Wall, this big symbol of separation between two worlds. Although it's worth mentioning that the Berlin Wall was meant to keep people in rather than keeping unauthorized entrance out. Now, we wrote a post about this at reconsidermedia.com. You can go check it out. We'll include that link on the show notes for this episode. But Trump's wall is nothing new. It's a little bit bigger and certainly more bombastic. But Trump's policy on illegal immigration is really not fundamentally different from Obama's. Use standard ports of entry for documented immigrants and asylum seekers and use border security to block all other non-authorized entry. But it's all wrapped in a very different story. And with that story, a story of invasion, of crime, of rapists and drug dealers and just bad people, you get one side so excited that they start donating money towards this cause, towards this wall, and one side so angry that they just are, are refusing to, to cooperate at all with the endeavor. So maybe we have the right amount of fence and border security, maybe we have too much or not enough, but is that the conversation that we're having? No. There's invasions. There are Berlin walls. There are these terrible people coming in, taking American jobs and putting Americans at risk, physical risk. There's nothing much to be gained from this sort of posturing. So we see that, you know, on free trade, the parties have flipped completely. And on immigration, to a large extent, something that we generally agreed on before has suddenly become super polarized. Right. Very, you know, from from, yeah, sure, let's just do this quietly to very black and white. Yes and no. Good and evil. And that's one example. Another example has been how the United States thinks about its involvement overseas, about troop deployments, about war and about Syria to be specific. So which party would you imagine saying something like this now or five years ago? Our wars in the Middle East are unjust and serving no purpose. And we just need to leave. Right now, this would be more attributable to Trump supporters. Specifically, his announcement about withdrawing troops from Syria and Afghanistan has created something of a furor among the foreign policy establishment, as well as many people in the left tribe who are calling the move reckless. And Republicans are welcoming it as a pullback from excessive United States overseas entanglements and engagements. 
right? So oftentimes this entire conversation gets framed in terms of interventionist policy versus isolationist policy, because there's only really two options, right, Eric? Right. Yes. Yes. You're either, you either want to stomp all over the world or you want to close up like a clam. No nuance. Yeah. And, and for people who think that America is withdrawing for the world, just notice that last Friday, America deployed 80 U.S. soldiers to Gabon, of all people, supposedly to respond to unrest in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I, there are still tons of foreign American military bases, despite the narratives that surround Syria and Afghanistan, which we're going to discuss specifically now. So the background on Syria, there are about 2,000 U.S. soldiers deployed in Syria as part of a support mission for the Syrian Democratic Forces. And the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, is a largely Kurdish, but also um, has a lot of Arabs uh, in, in it as well. And it's a group based in northern Syria that has carved out a very large uh, territory with some degree of autonomy within Syria. And it's been able to achieve that autonomy for itself uh, because of the Syrian civil war. Assad's been focused on other areas. The U.S. also has forces on the ground in other areas further south in Syria. The, the area that gets talked about a lot is Al-Tanf base. And this is sort of deployment used as a blocking presence to Iranian supply routes that run through southern Syria into Lebanon. And the idea is here that the U.S. really doesn't want to fight Iran directly on the ground in Syria, but Iran really also doesn't really want to run the risk of inadvertently hurting or killing U.S. forces because that would force the U.S. to, to respond. So the same kind of logic also works for U.S. forces in the north supporting the, the SDF, but for different countries. So Turkey, even though it's a U.S. ally, really wants to eliminate the YPG. The YPG stands for the People's Protection Units. And if it doesn't seem like the YPG is a good acronym for that, it's because it's in another language. So the YPG is a Kurdish group. Turkey really wants to eliminate the YPG because Turkey considers the YPG to be an offshoot of another Kurd Kurdish terrorist group in the PKK, which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Yeah. So... The Kurdistan Workers' Party is in Turkey. It's the PKK. The People's Protection Units, the YPG, is in Syria. Turkey says they're related. The U.S. says they're not related. The U.S. recognizes the PKK in Turkey as a terrorist organization, but the U.S. has been supporting the YPG in Syria. And the YPG, the People's Protection Units, the Kurdish force, is basically the largest entity within the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF. So if you're not confused already, then, well, sorry. So <laughs> the, the, US has, the U.S. has a bunch of soldiers in the north, both supporting the SDF and the YPG, but also as a, as a way to block Turkey from moving into certain areas of northern Syria and threatening or attacking the YPG, which is the U.S.'s ally. So as Eric talked about, the, the trigger here was Trump announcing that the U.S. is going to withdraw its forces from Syria. He gave it a one-month timeline, and they've subsequently backtracked, and Bolton has made the withdrawal conditional, and Trump has said, oh, it's going to be coordinated with Turkey and all that. But the narrative that developed in response to Trump's surprise announcement to some has remained, and that is that the U.S., is making a split-second decision. It is not thinking about what it is doing. 
The U.S. is abandoning our allies, the Kurds and the YPG, and that threatens American credibility around the world. I mean, how could any other country possibly trust the U.S. to follow through on its obligations if it doesn't support its allies who did all the fighting on the ground? Now, as a side note, the question of what credibility even means is a good one, and I'm writing a piece for this for geopolitical futures that'll be coming out in the future. So if you're interested in, in thinking more about the concept of credibility, check that out. More criticism has to do with complaints that the U.S. withdrawal is going to create a power vacuum. It's handing an easy win to Russia, giving Iran free reign to do whatever it wants in Syria. But the fact is, Iran is already in Syria. It's been in Syria. And 2,000 U.S. troops in supporting roles isn't really done doing much and hasn't done much to restrain Iranian influence and, and military presence throughout the entire country. That's why you have Israel striking Iranian positions in southern Syria. As for Russia, maybe the U.S. withdrawal benefits Russia a little bit because the, the Syrian Kurds are now kind of saying, oh, shoot, Turkey might invade. We need someone on our side. And has, they've turned to Assad now um, to make some sort of deal with Assad so that Syrian government forces will move to northern Syria and basically block Turkey in a way that the U.S. was blocking Turkey. So maybe that helps Russia a little bit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So right now what we're saying is that Democrats are opposing the withdrawal because it is soft on Iran and Russia in a great power game in the Middle East that the Republicans no longer care about when, of course, the fear was that the Republicans wanted to bomb Iran because Iran was being too aggressive. And the Democrats were the ones saying, you know, we shouldn't be involved in these great power games in the Middle East and running around getting involved in wars and stoking up hot spots because of, you know, perceived enemies that we have. And, you know, if we think back to the Bush years, we were keeping combat troops in a Middle Eastern country to treat it as a pawn in a great power game with Russia. Right. How did Republicans and Democrats feel about that then? And oh, yeah. Also, side note, in 2012, which is maybe what I was thinking of the year. Remember when Romney said that Russia was America's greatest enemy during his campaign and everyone laughed? And not only everyone, but President Obama, after he won the 2012 election, said, quote, when he was when he was uh, roasting Romney a little bit, uh, basking in his win, he said, quote, after all, you don't call Russia our number one enemy, not Al Qaeda, Russia. Unless you're stuck in a Cold War mind warp, 
So, you know, that quote didn't age well. But remember when the Republicans were crazy for thinking Russia was our great enemy and, you know, and we're just, you know, and, and crazy for thinking we need to block Iran in the Middle East and get involved in all these wars in order to do that. And and now remember how the Republicans are, you know, and, and the Democrats were crazy for not wanting to do that. And now the, the Republicans are crazy for wanting to withdraw forces from the Middle East because they're tired of playing power games with Russia and Iran for desert in the Middle East. And the Democrats are like, whoa, we need to stay here and do this. Pepperidge Farm remembers. Yeah, two, two years after President Obama said, Russia is not our number one enemy. You're stuck in this Cold War mind warp. Russia annexed Crimea. And that was the first time that, I guess, aside from the Balkans, that a European country changed the borders of Europe and, and for since World War II. And everyone was up in arms and saying, well, what are we going to do about Russia? So it didn't age very well even two years after the fact, right? Yep. And now both tribes have totally flipped. Exactly. So why are we pulling out of Syria then? Well, ostensibly, it's because the Islamic State has been largely defeated. And if you're following closely, you'll know that, that IS isn't really completely defeated. They, there are pockets of IS fighters, a couple thousand of them left. They're carrying out terrorist attacks here and there. But by and large, they've lost all of the expansive territory that they at one point controlled. And eliminating IS control of both Syrian and Iraqi territory was really why the U.S. intervened in Syria in the first place. It was the risk posed to the Middle Eastern order, the established order, by a transnationalist group. That is a group that wanted to eliminate the current national borders and erect a new entity that would risk throwing everything out of whack. That was the threat that the U.S. was trying to eliminate. Well, and also, you know, at the time, if they had established control of, you know, Syria and the Levant, they would have, you know, or Iraq, Syria and the Levant, they, they would have had, you know, and, and settled themselves. They would have the capacity to, you know, expand further, launch terrorist attacks overseas. Like it, it would have been a disaster. And now they're stuck in a bit of desert, pressed from all sides. It's a very different picture now. And, you know, it's also worth noting that one of the reasons the U.S. got involved from maybe a moral perspective is that, you know, ISIS may have had space to pop up because of U.S. intervention in Iraq and intervention in Syria that prolonged the civil war there. And, you know, and we had a little bit of, ooh, our bad guys, maybe maybe we should go clean that up. And, uh, you know, also side note, remember when in 2003 we decided it was a good idea to topple a dictator in a Middle Eastern country and hope that a big multi-ethno-sectarian state would just become more democratic and everyone would be happy? And a whole bunch of people said, like, wait a minute, that's a terrible idea. This is obviously wrong. You're an idiot for doing this. And then during the Arab Spring, some other president decided that some other Middle Eastern nation, this case Syria, a also a multi-ethno-sectarian state ruled by a brutal evil dictator. If we just like toppled that t- dictator and hoped that a nice, happy, shiny People's Republic of Democrat democracy would rise up and everything would just be fine. And the exact same people who thought it was crazy in 2003 thought it was a great idea then and it would just work out great and it wouldn't turn into an entire nation being destroyed by endless civil war. Pinch remembers. Thank you, Eric. You're welcome. <laughs> but, you, but you see all these tribal flippages happening all the time. It's the exact, you know, like it's the exact same idea, right? Let's topple the dictator. 
that people will, will hail us as, as liberators and democracy will arise. And we did it once and it was a terrible idea then. And then, and we did it again. And the exact same people who knew it was a bad idea because it was a different guy in office were like, oh, this seems great. Arab Spring, great idea. Oh, yeah. It worked out great in Egypt too when, when the US was like, ah, people want freedom and democratic elections. Wait, 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 you elected the Muslim Brotherhood? Uh, have that. Oh, Libya it worked out great there too. We were like, oh yeah, this Gaddafi guy, he's bad. He's going to kill people. So let's support the rebels until they topple him. Oh, they toppled him. Let's leave. I'm sure it will work out great without us there. Oh no, it's turned into an endless civil war as well. Like we just keep doing this. Yeah. But one tribe is only mad about the first time we did it, not the next two. Exactly. It blows my mind. We're really not here to de- debate the, the mistakes of American foreign policy. And I mean, there's so much nuance, even in like the Libya intervention, that it's clearly not as clear cut as we just laid it out to be. Sure. <laughs> the point that we're making is that different people support or oppose the same exact interven- inter- interventions or policies based on who's advocating for those interventions or policies. So coming back to Syria, no, Islamic State is entirely dead a point that a lot of people on the left have now made in response to Donald Trump's claim that ISIS has been defeated. But you have to ask the question, what would it take to accomplish at this point a complete elimination of the IS insurgency? Because now we can no longer really use conventional military tactics against them because they've lost their conventional force. It is now a counterinsurgency. And the only way to effectively restrain not really eliminate, but restrain an insurgency over a protracted period of time is by permanent occupation, which is not really something that Americans would be willing to tolerate anyways. So the narrative on the left has been that Trump, reckless as ever, has woke up one morning, decided to pull out of Syria, abandon our allies, ruin American credibility, and create a power vacuum in Syria that will hand the world over to Russia. And just recall that not too long ago, that same tribe was saying that the U.S. air and missile strikes in Syria in, in April 2017 and 2018 were going to lead to World War III because Trump was being reckless in bringing the U.S. into direct confrontation with Russia. And now in Syria, we have an example of the U.S. doing something that it has, it has done very poorly over the last 15 years, which has set a discrete military objective, the elimination of territorial control by ISIS, accomplish it. And leave. This is something that it, it failed to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it caused the U.S. to be sucked into what were basically unwinnable wars for a decade. And this is what the opposition is critiquing. Yeah, and the right wing's no better, right? It's it's no, been, not at all. Or the right try, you know they they have they have similarly just you know when whenever Bush was doing it, it was great. Whenever Trump uh, Obama was doing it, it was terrible. And whenever Trump was doing it. It was great, right? Like, and it's the same thing, um, or it's the completely opposite thing. Uh, but whatever it is, it's it's our guy, right? So it must be good. And if we if we look to Afghanistan, this is this is a bit less dramatic and there's a bit less kerfuffle about it. But we're not going to. So we won't get into quite as much detail. But you know, quick background here is we've been in Afghanistan for 17 years. Think about that. We probably have listeners who are younger than that who have been literally alive. Only when the United States has been involved in Afghanistan. So right now we have about 14,000 troops left. Trump's proposing withdrawing 7,000 of those. 
At its peak, there were over 100,000 U.S. forces in Afghanistan. This was, of course, during a surge carried out by President Bush, who loves war. I mean, wait a minute. No, President Obama. Yes, indeed. President Obama, who decided that it was time for a surge in Afghanistan as the surge in Iraq was winding down. And, you know, and at the end of the surge, Obama was publicly criticized by the right wing, especially Trump himself, for publicly announcing a timeline for U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan following that surge. So and it's worth noting, we talked about on a prior episode about government spending, that when U.S. forces were at their peak in Afghanistan, the U.S. spent about as much in Afghanistan cumulatively over a few years as it did on Iraq during its peak deployment there. So we're, you know, talking about very similar policies and a, a president who, you know, came in advocating for withdrawal from these overseas adventures, ramping one of them up, you know, fine on one side, problem for the other. And so just as the right decried Obama's decision, you know, first his campaign planning or his campaigning to to withdraw significantly from Iraq and Afghanistan, and then his actual drawing down of the surge in Afghanistan, now the left are decrying Trump's decision to draw down in, in Afghanistan, saying that it's ill-conceived, it's rashly made, we're abandoning allies that we said we'd stick by and handing the field to the Taliban who will just retake control of the country. And, you know, so right now, the only real options are withdraw or, you know, semi-permanent occupation. You know, if we need to think about if we're if we're not going to end our or, or draw down our presence somewhere and we're not just going to occupy something totally permanently, what is the trigger for withdrawal? Right. And is it feasible? Right. Is, is the trigger only that the Taliban is totally defeated? You know, it is. Uh, and are we willing to commit the troops necessary to try to do that after 17 years of failing to? So, you know, we need to think about what our options are. But, you know, is it immediately necessarily reckless to withdraw further from Afghanistan after Obama had already drawn down from 100,000 to 14,000 troops? Yeah. So for me, the case of Middle Eastern wars is a, like a particularly frank example of tribal flippage. <laughs> Uh, I just love that phrase. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember in 2008 when President Obama won the first time, he campaigned on leaving Iraq. And the, the prevailing argument on the right went something like, well, maybe the Iraq war was a bad idea, but we can't just leave all of a sudden and abandon our allies. All of this, the, the minority Sunnis in Iraq will, will become afraid of Shia dominance and feel the need to respond. Uh, that kind of later turned into the Islamic State. The left's response was something like, no, 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 that's dumb. The war is unjust. Prolonging an unjust war makes it more unjust. We don't belong there. The people don't want us there. We just need to leave. So, And clearly these are somewhat simplified positions, and not everyone fit into those categories back then, but they accurately capture the zeitgeist of the moment, and those positions have flipped. Trump. Advocating withdrawing from Syria and Afghanistan is getting the same criticism from the left for withdrawing too quickly from its positions in the Middle East. This is what the right was criticizing President Obama for in 2008. And so what's changed? Well, what's changed is the story around the policy, right? Obviously, no one's going to sit there and say withdrawal is always bad or staying is always bad. But it's that whenever Trump wants to withdraw from somewhere, it's erratic. It's, you know, it's it's 
not upholding a commitment. And when Obama wants to withdraw from something, it's you know, it's it's ending an unjust war, right? There's just different stories around it. And then the same goes for the flip side. You know, when Obama wanted to withdraw, it was cowardly. It was part of the apology tour. You know, it was showing weakness. You know, when Obama cozied up to Russia and hit the reset button, that was lauded by the left, hated by the right. Now that Trump is saying nice things about Putin, that's hated by the left, lauded by the right. So it's just that these, you know, people take these pretty much same things and they take all this other kind of context that they've that they've decided that, you know, they want to add to it, that these, you know, they're taking these stories that they've already told themselves about these leaders and just applied those stories of like, oh, when, you know, when a bad person or a cowardly person or a dumb person, an erratic person does something, that thing, whatever it is, is bad or cowardly or dumb or erratic. And so it doesn't matter to some extent what they do, right? You know, like at some point. Trump could just literally copy and paste something that Obama did and people would hate it, much like Obama when he copied and pasted George Herbert Walker Bush's idea for a public mandate on health care. Well, when Obama did it, the right hated it. When Herbert Walker Bush was advocating for it, the right loved it. This flippage happens all the time. I got one more rant for you. And it's remember when Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize for being elected president because he said, he was going to get the United States out of all these foreign wars, reigning in Bush's longer timeline. He was going to end the era of warmongering, of excessive U.S. intervention, of messing around in places we don't belong. And, you know, that was how the world reacted to Obama. And, you know, currently, U.S. allies are upset that the U.S. is not upholding its commitments to Syria. And this is, of course, a developing story as to what we're exactly going to do. The What's different is the story about this, right? Trump does himself zero favors by see, by being erratic and by, you know, getting into spats with U.S. allies. And I don't want to defend that. But when Obama planned to, let's say, alter the commitments that the previous administration made to allies who were in Iraq and Afghanistan with the United States and unilaterally withdraw U.S. forces, despite our allies being there, taking the brunt of it with us, he literally won the peace prize for it. And now altering, and now Trump altering commitments to draw down troop presence with U.S. allies in the space is horrifying. And so I know some people like to look to our allies outside of the United States, uh, or the, the leaders of those allies outside the United States, and say, well, if they're cranky, it must be bad. And if they're happy, it must be good. But, you know, just keep in mind that, you know, there's a couple other things at play here besides the policy itself. One, you know, there is a general lack of respect for Trump from U.S. allies for a lot of reasons. Trump, you know, earned or not, but this lack of respect for the man clearly influences how the leaders of our allies, who second, are also politicians with their own bases to charm, who tend not to like Trump themselves, right? How they publicly and in speeches and in, in you know, political campaign type speeches, how they publicly react to changes in U.S. policy, right? What they say publicly doesn't necessarily represent what they think is in, you know, the best interest for the nation. They're going to say a little bit about, you know, how they feel personally and a lot about what's going to appeal to their own political base because they've got re-election to run for as well. So these very different reactions are, you know, are, are reacting to effectively the same U.S. policy, which is you know, deciding to alter a commitment, alter a timeline to rapidly withdraw U.S. forces that have been involved overseas in the Middle East for a long time. Whew. Okay, so we're going to step back and do our reconsider moment at the end here. But if you've noticed, 
throughout this episode that Eric and I are perhaps more charged about this issue. You know, we do our best to be as dispassionate on Reconsider as possible because the nature of the show, we just feel that that's our obligation. But the issue of positions changing depending on which tribe supports it really strikes at the core of what Reconsider is all about. So this is yeah. this is really our thing. So when we see this happening constantly, it does get get our blood boiling a little bit. And there, there are different reasons for that. But I think the, the powerful thing to take away from it all is that this happens all the time. And once you start seeing it happening, observing that is sort of an, an antidote to that tribal flippage, which is nice because you need a vaccine from the disease. Eh? See, it all came back, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Stop that leakage. <laughs> or, or take your medicine. <laughs> and... You know, we we lambasted both sides today, not because we're lambasting policy positions, but because we're pointing out how these contradictions develop over time and how the story changes to accompany them. The point of the show is not to say that someone or some party is right or wrong. In fact, one side could, could even flip and be right both times, depending on how circumstances develop. But leaving that aside for just a moment, we have coined this grotesque term tribal flippage <laughs> because the, the, these changes in position are driven by instinct, by tribal affiliation, by politics as sports, even though they don't feel like they are. We may feel that our, our beliefs and opinions about the world change because we have become more informed about one thing or another, but oftentimes they're not. If the same policy gets represented in a slightly different light, a new story is presented about it from a different angle. Somehow it feels very different. And now we're against the thing that we were for not too long ago. And this happens to us. It happens all the time. One of my little hypotheses on this that I'm picking around is that to some extent, what seems to be a left-right kind of fight is actually much more of a like, you know, expertism or mainstreamism or beltism versus populism. You know, so for example, you know, if we think both, you know, Obama, who's who's as much more like, you know, mainstreamer, was pro-TPP and and you know tended to agree with the the like the economists out there. And then Bernie Sanders and Trump were very against it, saying it was bad for the people. Maybe these were much more kind of populist policies. And and at different times you have different people in different parties who get traction by by talking about something being bad for America or bad for the people or bad for Main Street or these big concepts where you start to create these internal or external enemies to this like group that that you like, you know, Main Street or or Americans or, you know, something like that. And, you know, that kind of populism can happen on both the left and the right. Right. And you see this idea the, of, of populism, especially going against like, you know, experts, either in economics or in foreign policy or, or whatever, in a lot of issues that, you know, that more fringe groups ride with where they say like, oh, experts are bad and, and you know, they're bad for people and they're out to get people. If we think of like climate change, vaccinations, GMOs, heck, the curvature of the earth. The experts who say like, you know, climate change is happening or, or vaccinations are fine or GMOs are fine or the earth has a curve, right? They're not only wrong, but they're conspiring to be wrong. They have incentives to misguide us. 
And you could potentially see that in, you know, being somewhat dog whistled by populist, populist politicians. Like, oh, don't listen to what the economists say about the economy. This is bad for you. And we have, you know, we have to ignore them. We have to do what we want. Don't listen to the foreign policy experts. This is bad for America. So, you know, I want to think about this idea that populism can spring up and rear its head in both the left and the right. You know, at different times, what you may see is something that looks like it's generally left-right switch is something where now the left, now the right has taken on the, the mantle of populism, whereas, you know, the other side can tend to center around more of this mainstreamism or expertism or something like that. So the, you know, populists are very good at telling tribal stories about making you feel like you're part of a tribe and that there's an enemy and that we have to go get them. And so these stories can be very powerful for us and, and cause us to forget policy. So this is a hypothesis that I am I am just, you know, tinkering with. I, I think there's a lot of I I'll hop in just before we close out because I think there's a lot of very astute observations that you just made. I just I, I have a problem with the word populism or populist. Mm. Yeah. Because every politician in history was a populist in the sense that they had to be popular. What is what does populism even mean? It is uh, it is an ism that has to do with being popular. But politics is by nature trying to be more popular than the other person. Everyone's a populist. So, mm. I mean, I think you're right. And I think we've talked about sort of the realignment of parties that might be going on right now as the, the left-right axis morphs into uh, an expert-non-expert axis, whatever you want to call that. Populism just is, seems like a word that purports to say more than it is actually saying. It's meaningless in my mind in, in the realm mm. of, of political discussion. Mm. Do you think there's a word that better reflects it? You know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid using the word demagogue here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some cases you could say nationalist, but that's only going to be one aspect of the expert, non-expert axis that, that you're talking about. And I don't yeah. think that nationalism ne- nas- necessarily means that you're a demagogue. I think it just might mean that you stress the national identity over the international identity. And we've talked before about how there are different types of nationalisms. Some have been very toxic. Some haven't been. And you know, some non-experts are focusing on supposedly the the benefit or the welfare of their own nation in contrast to doing or be becoming more involved in the international arena. So maybe that's something. Yeah. Anyway, we'll noodle on it in our 12 seconds of free time between this and the next episode. Oh. But closing thought. So next time you're really super fired up about something, you know, consider if you think about the actual policy, what is the specific thing going on? Just think about how your tribe was talking about that policy five or even two years ago. You know, were they advocating for basically the opposite before? And if so, you know, what happened? What changed? How's the story different? How's it painted differently than it used to be painted? How do you really feel? What do you think is actually the best policy, regardless of who's advocating for it or what reasons you think they're advocating for it or what context you think is around that advocacy, right? What is the best policy? And, and if, you've, if you've seen this, if, you've, if this episode has caused you to go like, holy smokes, yeah, my tribe has done this, you know, this is a good opportunity to think like, hey, Maybe there is, you know, this is a time that I've been wedged. So with that, dear listeners, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being patient as we have been, you know, super busy. We are going to try our darndest to get you another episode in two weeks on the nose. Uh, So hopefully we'll see you in a fortnight. And until then, don't let the pundits, the tribes, your, you know, favorite political leader do the thinking for you. Pause 
and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.